Before returning with Jesus to his final night in the upper room, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to encourage us today not to read the Gospels anachronistically. And that is a big term, so let's define it. I googled the term and found a really helpful illustration. Imagine reading a story about a caveman who microwaves his dinner. Or watching a film adaptation of a Jane Austen novel in which the characters text each other instead of writing. Obviously both are absurd. Ancient men didn't have microwaves. In Jane Austen's time, they didn't have phones and texting. And anachronism is something that is chronologically out of place. Chronologically speaking, a great deal of what you and I now understand about Jesus, his identity, and his mission became clear after Jesus resurrected from the grave. And that means that we have to be very careful not to read the gospel accounts prior to the resurrection with the same understanding that the disciples had after the resurrection, or at least assume that they have the same understanding. That would be an anachronistic reading of the gospels. Again, to expect them to understand everything that we now understand after the resurrection, well, they didn't understand all that before the resurrection. Many years ago, I endured a sermon on Matthew 16, in which the preacher dramatically played up Peter's folly as the central theme of the chapter. This is the passage where Peter, of course, is at Caesarea Philippi with Christ, and he correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he denies that Jesus will go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, die, and resurrect. Peter says, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Well, the preacher's sermon was a rollicking narrative, pillaring Peter as some sort of stooge who just constantly misunderstood Jesus. And the atmosphere was set for a succession of humorous stories about bumbling, stumbling, doubting Christians. Well, the irony of the sermon was that the man was a professor of preaching, And the joke was really on him. He displayed the anachronistic fallacy. The problem with that kind of preaching is that it's rooted in a prideful assumption that I would have known better. I would have performed differently. No, you would not have. The fallacy is that we read into Peter's foibles our post-resurrection understanding of Jesus' identity and mission. Before Jesus went to his cross and resurrected, a great deal of what we now know is was a mystery. That's the biblical term. Paul tells the Ephesians, Ephesians, there we go, the Ephesians, that his post-resurrection apostolic role was to bring light on those mysteries that have been hidden away in the mind of God for centuries. 
Paul tells us even the bright angels of heaven, with all their extraordinary wisdom, could not comprehend the plan of God and the purposes of God for our planet. If you think about it, Paul himself was an astute scholar of the Old Testament. He was on a path to becoming perhaps the greatest Jewish scholar of the age, and perhaps one of the best scholars in all of human history in Judaism. He truly read, memorized, absorbed the Old Testament. And yet there were so many things that Paul himself did not understand. Now, if you think the mystery of the cross, the resurrection, it all just makes perfect sense, if you think it's simple enough for a child to understand... And it is. There is a reason for that. And the reason is not your intelligence. The reason is the Holy Spirit made it clear. Would you look at 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16? Paul asked, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But... We have the mind of Christ. Now, two truths are evident. First, God's mind is not understood by any of us. Second, it is possible to understand the mind of Christ. Wait a minute. Aren't those truths contradictory? None can understand the mind of the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ, who is the Lord. How do you explain that? How do you reconcile this apparent contradiction? Well, let's back up and let's notice the fuller context. In verse 2, Paul tells us that his message concerns Jesus Christ and him crucified. Earlier in chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul argued that the preaching of the crucifixion is sheer folly madness, foolishness to those who are perishing. And from chapter 1 and verse 18 through chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul makes a thorough case that the message of a crucified Savior is indeed just sheer madness to the world. So how does one come to understand the strange message of a crucified God? Well, don't overestimate your intellectual powers and figuring that all out. How did you come to understand the gospel and embrace the person of Jesus Christ? Well, let's read 1 Corinthians 2, beginning with verse 6. Paul says, Yet among the mature believers, we do impart wisdom... Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul is saying here, there is a wisdom that is available to us that the worldly wise cannot understand. But this wisdom has been hidden away in the secret counsels of God. 
It's unavailable to earthly princes. They do not understand that what occurred on Golgotha was actually divine wisdom. The high king of heaven nailed to a shameful cross on earth had explained them. And Paul continues then to deride our earthly empirical and rational faculties. Look at verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, that's an empirical faculty, what you can see, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. When Paul speaks of seeing and hearing, he's talking about your two most important empirical faculties. Likewise, with his reference to the heart of man imagining, he's referring to our rational capacities. The NIV translates this, no mind has conceived. The human mind has not understood this. So don't overestimate your seeing, your hearing, your empirical faculties. Don't overestimate your intellectual abilities. You are not as intelligent as you think. Now, Paul already told the Corinthians back in chapter 1 and verse 26, would you glance back at that verse? All right, this is for all of us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. If he came here, he'd probably say, well, that includes none of you, right? None of you are wise according to worldly standards. None of you are powerful. None of you are celebrities today, right? So what really happened when you embraced Jesus Christ and understood the gospel? How did you come to understand that? Well, back in chapter 2, look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. If it all makes perfect sense to you, well then praise the Spirit of God. The Spirit illumines the deep and profound mysteries of God, too inscrutable for the mind of man to ever understand. And would you read the delightful words of verses 12 and 13? Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. God just freely gives us wisdom through the agency of His Spirit. And if you have embraced the gospel with very simple, childlike faith, it's not because of your great intellect, it's because the Spirit has made the gospel clear. The Spirit has revealed God's truth to your heart. All right? Now, with that in mind, let's turn back to Luke chapter 2. All right, Luke chapter 2. When you read through the Gospels, it is apparent that there are some people who seem to have some genuine, if limited, insight into Jesus' true identity and mission. One of those individuals is a man named Simeon. Luke tells us old Simeon in the temple greeted the infant Jesus. 
And Simeon has some notion that Jesus is no ordinary infant. So look at verse 30. Here's what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Well, that's astonishing. Does Simeon understand everything about Jesus' mission, his death, and his resurrection? Well, probably not. But he does seem to have some genuine insight that others around him don't have. This is an unusual child. Well, how is this possible? Well, would you back up and read verses 25 and 26? Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Oh, well, that's just a glimpse of what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Simeon had a special measure of the Holy Spirit. He could probe into mysteries that are only clear to us now in hindsight. We live in the age of Pentecost. Now, John the Baptist was another such individual. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, in calling Jesus the Lamb of God, John seems to have some sense of God's divinity and humility bound up in Jesus. God, the Lamb. That really, truly is an astonishing insight. As I've commented previously, how could anyone have possibly understood that the exalted divine figure of Daniel 7 was also the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. That was a mystery. So how does John have this insight? Well, if you turn back one chapter to chapter 1 and verse 15 of Luke's Gospel, the angel Gabriel makes a prophecy to Zechariah, John's father. And the text says, "...for he will be great before the Lord." And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Well, John was full of the Holy Spirit. It's no wonder he has a deeper understanding. But of course, even John himself never understood all that we now understand after the resurrection In fact, later on, in a state of confusion, John himself will ask, Are you he that should come? Or do we look for another? Even John had some misunderstanding. But hopefully, these two examples, together with Paul in 1 Corinthians, makes the point. It's the Spirit that illumines. It's the Spirit that unravels the mysteries. It's the Spirit that makes the gospel clear. We desperately need the Spirit. All right? So with all that in place, let's go back at long last to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. 
In John chapter 14, we are with Jesus in the upper room. Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit are more than 50 days out at this point. So let's be careful not to read the passage with the anachronistic fallacy. At this very late stage of Jesus' ministry, there is still a great deal the disciples themselves do not understand. In two previous sermons, I've emphasized three things in particular they do not comprehend. At this very late hour in Jesus' ministry, two of them are explicit in the text, and the third is implicit and becomes clear as you move along. First, the disciples don't understand where Jesus is going. Look at chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Or in chapter 14 and verse 15, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Second, the disciples still don't understand Jesus' identity with the Father. To put it another way, the disciples do not comprehensively understand the incarnation. Jesus chides Thomas in verse 7 for not knowing the Father through him. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. When Philip asked to see the Father, Jesus rebukes Philip for not understanding who he is. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Obviously, it's some real misunderstanding here. And third, the disciples don't understand the next stage of Jesus' mission. A mission that we'll learn just a little bit about today. Obviously, though... If they don't understand where Jesus is going, or even who he is, how can they possibly understand his great commission at this point? How will they ever get it all sorted out? Especially when you consider Jesus is leaving. So friends, we at this point are on the verge of the most important transition in all human history. Like a mighty hinge bolted down at the center of human history, Jesus' death and resurrection are going to swing us from the old covenant to the new covenant. From B.C. to A.D. in our calendars, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And Jesus will soon ascend from his grave to a throne in heaven He will leave the responsibility of opening his kingdom to his apostles. The apostles of the Lamb will be tasked with founding the church of God on the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ himself. And the world that was lost in Adam is about to be reconquered through the second Adam. He will commission his apostles to carry forward his mission right to the ends of the earth, right up to the current hour. And the old age of the world that began in Eden... And perishes on a cross will give way to the new age of the world, which will emerge from a tomb and will culminate in a new creation. And we are right on the verge of the transition. And the disciples 
are still clueless. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? This, by the way, is why after the resurrection, Jesus says, go back to the upper room and just wait a while. Wait for the Spirit. You won't get this sorted out on your own. So in that context, let's read verses 12 through 17, where Jesus will hint at their mission. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit, oh, the Spirit, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, in these verses, Jesus reveals two extraordinary truths. First, the disciples have an enormous mission ahead of them to continue the work that Jesus began. And second, the Spirit will come along and help them in this great venture. And these two truths are interrelated. And they are, in fact, so extraordinary that I cannot deal with them exhaustively in one sermon. All right? There's a lot going on here. But let's at least get started on them. When Jesus tasked the disciples with carrying forward his work, he promises that they will do greater works. Greater works than Jesus himself has done. Okay, what does that mean? Well, certainly it cannot refer to Jesus' atonement on the cross or his resurrection from the dead, or the overthrow of the curse, as God, only he could pull off works of that magnitude. Likewise, it doesn't mean the disciples were surpassed Jesus' miracle-working power. Jesus healed anyone and everyone who came to him. He healed a diverse range of maladies. He opened the eyes of a man born blind in John chapter 9. And we came to understand that that particular miracle, opening blind eyes, was reserved exclusively for the performance of deity. Further, Jesus, unlike the disciples, had power to perform miracles from within himself. And at the end of the gospel, John tells us that he recorded selected signs that Jesus performed in order to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus' miracles actually demonstrated him to be categorically different than anyone else. All right, so the greater works cannot refer to the apostles doing miracles. So what does he mean? Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. 
You know, had Jesus not said that, would you believe it? I wouldn't. No chance. But Jesus said it. So what does he mean? Well, there's a couple of clues in our text today that we'll notice, and we'll spend some more time with this next week as well. But would you notice the first clue? Observe the causal statement at the end of verse 12. Because I am going to the Father. That is a really important first clue to properly interpreting the text. The disciples who do greater works, well, why? Because Jesus is returning to the Father. That's the underlying foundation for the greater works to come. Jesus' ascension to the Father is the immediate cause of the greater works. He ascends, and because he ascended, now the greater works will follow. So we have to ask then, what precisely happens when Jesus returns to the Father? And can we answer that question biblically? Many Christians, I'm convinced, go quite wrong in their thinking about the ascension. All too often, Christians are tempted to interpret Jesus' ascension in passive terms. They're tempted to view Jesus' departure as a prolonged suspension of his work until his second coming. Or worse, a prolonged abandonment of the world to let it all just fall into chaos once again until he finally comes back at world's end and puts everything back together again. Some are tempted to think the power and the kingdom were present only as long as Jesus walked the earth. Some have suggested the kingdom was postponed as if God's sovereign plans just didn't quite work out. He'll come back someday and make a second attempt. And some suggest that Jesus' departure essentially abandons planet Earth to the prince of the power of the air who rules until his second coming. And my friends, all of this is completely mistaken. Nevertheless, there was a kind of thinking that permeated prophetic discourse in the previous generation. It's still around today. Prophecy experts spend enormous time trying to figure out whether the Antichrist walked the earth or what sort of diabolical conspiracies were at work to bring about a one-world government and such things. And their focus was almost exclusively on the human side of things. The newspaper... And they tend to pay very little or no attention to developing a theology of Easter and ascension. We need a theology of ascension, which really begins with Easter. What happened up there in the clouds when Jesus went right through the clouds and right up to his Father? What happened up there? Can you answer that question biblically? Well... Later that evening, in the upper room, Jesus will say in John 16, 11, we'll get there, the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler is judged already. 
Satan was judged at the cross of Christ. Satan's head was crushed. Yes, he is still alive and active. But if I can quote one of my former professors who was an avid deer hunter, Satan is like a hard-shot deer who just tears off through the woods in great wrath. But its destruction is certain. He roars like a wounded lion. Martin Luther wrote, In a mighty fortress is our God, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what's the one word? The word is the word, the logos, or Christ. That word above all earthly powers. That's where Christ is situated right now, above all earthly powers. The logos has been exalted as king over all things. Do you really believe that? Well, let's think our way through a succession of verses. And you know that I'm going to reference Daniel chapter 7. All right. I had a pastor friend stop by my office this week, and I said, what are you preaching? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm working on Daniel chapter 7. It's amazing. I'm like, brother, I would love to hear you. But he pastors in Spanish, unfortunately. All right. Daniel 7 says this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Imagine that. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Here's God, the Ancient of Days, and he's sitting on a fiery throne. And he is surrounded up there in the vault of heaven by tens of thousands of angelic beings. But Daniel said, I kept looking, and here is what he saw. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That was Jesus' most, uh, his favorite self-designation. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Was that fulfilled? Well, Jesus on trial said, from now on, Daniel 7 will be fulfilled. The Son of Man came with the clouds. Now, when you and I think about the coming of the Son of Man, we almost always think of him coming to earth. And that's part of our problem. Because there is another place to which one can come. If he were to leave earth, then he would come back to heaven. And this first reference here to him coming is not a coming to earth. It's a coming to his throne in the heavens. The Son of Man came to his throne. All right? If my dad calls asking if I'm coming to Denver for the holidays, all right, then I'd obviously leave South Carolina. You'd say, well, he left. All right? But from my dad's perspective, he would say, well, he came. He came home, right? 
Now, Jesus has been telling us over and over and over again that he is one with the Father. All through John, he's been saying this, I'm one with the Father. And now in John 14, he says, look, I am going to the Father. From the Father's perspective, what's happening here? He's coming. He's coming back to his throne, having triumphed here below on earth. So was Daniel 7 fulfilled? Yes, absolutely. This is why Jesus, when he resurrected, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It is fulfilled. At the ascension, the disciples saw Jesus disappear into the clouds. All right? I remember as a kid reading that passage and just thinking, well, what happened up there? You know? Well, bye-bye Jesus. The world goes back to normal. That's not what happened. He ascended to his throne. The New Testament also makes it clear that Psalm 2 has been fulfilled. At the resurrection, God decreed, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that's been happening ever since the resurrection. Jesus is reigning over the nations. Listen to what Paul told the Ephesians. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's a reference to his triumph over the powers of darkness. Paul told the Colossians, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And that even now he rules over all, here's Paul's words, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Paul says this is already happening. The author of Hebrews tells us, But in these last days he had spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds, listen to this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's happening right now, the Logos upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, when did that happen? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, just as he predicted in Matthew 26 when he was put on trial. From now on, you will see me at the right hand of the Father, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What's the name? Christ. He was made Christ at the resurrection, Paul tells us in, in, in Acts chapter 2. Now, Paul also, t- that was Peter, not Paul. Paul also told the Corinthians, listen to this, he must reign. He must continue to reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. If there are enemies of God roaming the planet today, then you can be certain that Jesus is reigning. Right? Think of that. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So friends, all these passages, and I could give you more, just really flesh out for us a doctrine of ascension. Ascension is not merely Jesus just sort of passively disappearing back in the clouds. And once you're aware of what ascension was and is, not only will you discover ascension all through the New Testament, it will, it will just change your whole life view and worldview. 
Jesus' ascension then was anything but a passive return to sit idly in the heavens waiting for the coach to put him back in the game. This is how I think some people view Christ's ascension. I think of Jesus as that sort of superstar athlete who gets benched and the enemy just runs up the score for a while and things are looking really bleak. And, but we all know in the end, the superstar is coming back in. He's going to get some more playing time. We're going to win just barely in the end. This is, not, this is not what the Bible teaches about Christ's ascension. It's just fiction. Now next week, we'll look at Revelation chapter 5. But in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus... It's clear, has already won the battle for human history. Jesus has already won the right to open a scroll. And when you open that scroll, all right, it's a scroll that identifies what happens in the future. And nobody can open it but Jesus. And John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. What's that? That's the resurrection. He's slain, and now he's standing. All right? Now, all of that is your first clue to interpreting verse 12. All right? How will we do greater works than Jesus? Well, Jesus is going to the Father, And from the Father's right hand, he will rule and guide the affairs of his kingdom from above, while his disciples carry on his work below. And believe me, they're going to take his gospel much further than Jesus ever did in the three years of his ministry. Why? Because he sits on a throne. Now, there is a second clue that needs some real development, and it takes us back to where we began. When Jesus ascends to that throne, guess what happens? Well, verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The age of the Holy Spirit is dawning. Pentecost is coming The spirit, like a mighty rushing wind, is coming. And suddenly all the disciples will enjoy spirit filling like John the Baptist and old Simon in the temple enjoyed. They're all going to be filled with the spirit. Old men, young women, they're all going to be filled with the spirit, Joel says. And with the coming of the spirit comes the power to preach the gospel and to experience sanctification And to advance Christ's agenda to the uttermost parts of the earth, Jesus reigns from a throne above, and we carry on his work below, empowered by the Spirit. And don't you dare leave Jerusalem, he says to the disciples, until you've received the promise of the Father. It's the Spirit who's going to do this. It's not you, it's the Spirit. We do greater works than Jesus Not because we are greater than Jesus, but precisely because another member of the Trinity is coming while Jesus sits on his throne. Now think about it. The presence of the Spirit is not confined to a single incarnation. His presence will fill 12 disciples and another 120 in the upper room 
and then 3,000 Pentecostal converts, and then 5,000, and Luke just stops numbering all those converts. And suddenly ambassadors for Christ, full of a spirit, have far surpassed the geographical reach of Jesus of Nazareth, who actually spent a very short time ministering in the bucolic hills of Galilee. Actually, do you realize that I have been preaching at UBC for nearly three times longer than Jesus ministered? I feel like I just got here. I've been here three times longer than Jesus in Galilee. And through the Spirit, the incarnation of Christ continues in his people all over the planet. And friends, it's right here in the upper room where Jesus, the night before he was crucified, formally introduces to us the Holy Spirit. This is a very exciting night, even though we know what's coming tomorrow. So as we conclude, let me ask you a question. If you had to guess what aspect of the Holy Spirit, who is indeed God Almighty, Jesus would emphasize when he formally introduces him to the disciples, what would you guess? How about his infinite power? How about his omnipresence? His wisdom, his eternality. Well, those attributes seem pretty crucial to carrying forward Jesus' mission, do they not? But would you look at how Jesus introduces the Spirit in verse 16? And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Does that strike you as anticlimactic? Just another helper? Somehow unworthy of the spirit beneath his dignity? Just another helper to come along? Just thinking of my boys sometime who run and get their little toolbox and want to help dad when something breaks. You know, that's how I think of a little helper. Daddy's helper, right? Another helper is coming? Why not God Almighty? Another helper. Well, would you consider the source? The person who made that statement was introduced to the world in an animal feeding trough. And he just stooped to wash the disciples' feet. And tomorrow he will perish on a cross as the suffering servant. And he will send another helper. The world and all of its pride and celebrity worship frowns on the whole notion of servanthood. The world frowns on the word deacon, literally translated servant. If we stop speaking Greek around here, we just call our deacons servants. The world frowns on Paul's insistence that he was a doulos, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But Peter was appalled that Jesus would stoop and wash the disciples' feet. The world frowns on all this. The world frowns on the notion that Eve was created as a helpmeet for Adam. Isn't that just demeaning to women? But the foot-washing servant 
The foot-washing servant introduces the Holy Spirit to us as another helper, another like himself, another servant. And it's amazing. And this notion is so counterintuitive, so countercultural, so antithetical to any world religion that it must be a mystery so deep that only God could come up with it. And that is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I wouldn't believe the second member of the Godhead was a servant, and the third member of the Godhead was another helper, unless God himself revealed that truth. And again, that's precisely the kind of mystery that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? I would have said, God, don't do it that way. Right? And you would have too. God, don't do it that way. That's the wrong way. Not a servant, not another helper. It would never occur to me to suggest that God Almighty come as a servant and a helper. But here's what else Paul said. But we have the mind of Christ. And so if the mind of Christ is in you, and you are filled with his spirit, then serving one another, helping one another, ministering to the entire body of Christ, it all just makes perfect sense, does it not? Because serving one another introduces us to the love of God. The love that has united the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from all eternity. It was love that brought the second member of the Trinity down to earth as a servant. And it was love that brings the Holy Spirit down to us as our helper. And so who are we not to serve and help one another? And when we serve here below, here's what happens. The ascendant reigning Christ above uses our very humble service to accomplish his agenda for the world. And that's what's going on in these verses. Shall we pray together? Father, we're so thankful for this delightful passage which introduces us to the Spirit. And help us, Lord, to serve one another. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.